Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman, with me as always, Prashant Iyer, and we've got a season. It has begun. The Red Wings have uh, have opened the season with a 3-0 loss against Carolina, uh, and really, frankly, all that means is they made it. Uh, Prashant, what did you think of, uh, well, what did you think of the fact that we, we've gotten to this point, first of all? You know, it's it's almost like uh, walking or getting ready for the game yesterday. It's like you're super excited. You're really pumped. We're finally here. The moment's there. And then you're reminded of what Red Wings hockey looks like right now. It's like, ah, yeah. I mean, I'm excited. I'm happy it's here. You know, and so it's kind of funny when the, the Red Wings social media account put out what kind of Red Wings gif, you know, summarizes your feelings. Uh, you know, I kind of responded with the Gustav Nyquist where he's just like, ah, I don't really know what's happening right now, but I think it's okay. Uh, that's kind of how I felt, you know, with that game coming back. And then of course, you know, Carolina has been just a matchup nightmare for the wings. So happy it's here, but unfortunately it came screaming back what Red Wings hockey looks like right now. Yeah. I think that's a, a fair description. I think they made it about, uh, three and a half minutes into that game before, uh, before everyone was, was quite reminded of uh, the Detroit Red Wings hockey experience. We're going to get to the game. We're going to get to uh, some of the standouts, including the first impressions. Before we do, we should get to something that happened uh, before the game, one day before the game, to be specific. And that is after, uh, you know, over a year of of not suspense, exactly, but the Red Wings named their 37th captain in, in franchise history. That was, of course, Dylan Larkin. The Red Wings uh, heard the call, and they, they gave Larkin the C, uh, Prashant, what were your thoughts on that, on the rollout, on the choice, and uh, anything else that surrounds it? I think, obviously, the, the choice, all of us knew this was going to be Dylan Larkin. You know, this is the the hometown kid, uh, has been the Red Wings' best player the last two years. Uh, you know, you could see this last season when he was the one still stepping up to handle the, the post-game pressers and having to explain and kind of handle this is how bad this team is right now and having to deal with those questions. I mean, you know, Wings fans have seen the pain in Nicholas Cronwell's face when he had to do it, you know, seeing the pain in uh, uh, Henrik Zetterberg's face as he had to do it. And you saw it last year a little bit in Dylan Larkin. So, you know, I think even Steve Eisenman alluded to this, that he was really the de facto leader and had been acting as such. And, and it was well received by the team. So I think, you know, the choice made a lot of sense. I was a little disappointed uh, Steve Eisman didn't go, you know, full Dwight Schrute here and just name himself the captain as the Hay King. But, you know, maybe for another day, uh, Eisman can come back and do that. But, 
you know, in reality, this was the only choice that made sense. If you were, if you were going to name a captain and had to be Dylan Larkin. So very pleased with that decision. I, I think it made all the sense in the world too. And I think what you just said was, was exactly it. I mean, it, it, this was, uh, I don't know how much of a choice it, it really was. It was kind of just, you, you put the C on the Jersey of the player who's been your captain for at least the last year or so. And, um, you know, I, I think, in Larkin's kind of journey to this point, um, the the parallels, not parallels so much, but the, the lessons that he talked about getting from Henrik Zetterberg, a player who he, he played on a line with early in his career, the last Red Wings captain who retired a couple years ago, um, and, and now obviously Larkin steps into his um, his shoes, I, I think really stood out to me. And I think that's something that, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, Dylan and Henrik necessarily are all that... Um, you know, kind of similar temperamentally. I think of Larkin and I think of the fire and I think of Zetterberg, who certainly, you know, was was able to give a, you know, a, a pointed quip and, and certainly played very hard. But I also think of the, the steadiness of, of him. And I think um, certainly there, those are things that uh, that that Dylan can can draw from. But also what stood out to me was the, the comment that um, Dylan shared from his conversation with Steve about, you know, Henrik Zetterberg was a little bit different of a captain than Nick Lidstrom. Nick was a little bit different than Steve Eiserman. And now diff- Dylan will be a little bit different from all of them. And I think when I think of uh, of what Larkin as a captain is going to be, it's going to be defined by um, that will to win, that fire that burns very visibly inside of him um, for, for for during games and, and, and in off-seasons and practices wanting to, to be better. Um, he, he really is going to set a standard. And that, to me, is the one commonality that all these guys have is whether it was Iserman, Lidstrom, Zetterberg, or now Larkin, I don't think you could ever argue that those were the guys setting the standard for the team behind them and around them. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree that that it had to be Larkin for exactly that reason. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting point to bring up how he's a different captain from Zetterberg and Lidstrom. And I think that has colored maybe some, you know, fans kind of view of Larkin, right? He's a little, obviously more animated, more, demonstrative on the ice, you know, people get, you know, people kind of chide him for slapping his stick on the ice or slapping him against the boards or maybe complaining to the refs, you know, it seems because it's very different than what you saw from Henrik Zetterberg and, and Nick Lidstrom. And I think you have to remember that when you saw both those guys as captains, there are very different points in their career, right? I mean, yeah. Nick Lidstrom is named captain in his 16th season in the NHL. You know, he he's named captain in 2006. He comes to the NHL in 1991, right? Uh, you know, Henrik Zetterberg is named captain in 2012. This is a guy who's drafted, you know, back in 2000. So it's it's a it's a very different position now for Dylan Larkin. And honestly, it reminds me somewhat of what Steve Eiserman was like early as a captain. Right. Eiserman's named captain in 1986 and, and, and people kind of poke at Larkin in all of his penalty minutes. I mean, Eiserman had almost 80 penalty minutes in 1989, 1990. Like it's it's and then he learned to rein it in and he started to pull it in. But I think Larkin is going to be more of that early year Steve Eiserman type captain as opposed to what fans have seen for the last 15 years from a Red Wings captain. And and that's OK. Everyone's got a different leadership style. And at the end of the day, as long as you are there for your teammates, you are bringing the best out of them and you're supporting them in these difficult situations uh, like the team is in right now, I think that's all you can really ask. Yeah, and, and I'd add, you know, this is my third season on the beat, so I've only seen Dylan for about half of his career by this point. But, you know, I, I do think, 
for as much as the fire is visible on the ice, I really think that, you know, he is sort of still that kind of, he can be quieter and he can be, uh, you know, maybe a little more discerning, like really thoughtful, frankly, in, in a lot of his press conferences, especially over the last year, year and a half, I've noticed. I, I think he's brought some real insight um, and perspective and really, frankly, in a, in a way that I think was not too different than the very brief snippet of Zetterberg that I saw toward the end of his career of laying out the situation of the team. And I do think that, you know, I'm sure that maybe I overrate it a little bit just because it's my job in the media. But I I think, you know, a captain's role in dealing with the media is important because ultimately they are the ones who who give whatever insight uh, after a tough game or, or a tough stretch um, we get into the locker room, especially in a season like this where we're not actually in there. Um, so I, I think that is important. And I think off the ice, you know, I've been impressed, um, you know, by, by Dylan's maturity through last year and, and, and how he handled that. It, it still showed that he was unhappy. You know, it's, that's who he is, that, that he's going to wear, um, some of that on his sleeve. But I also think, you know, there was a lot of thoughtfulness that, that went into how he handled last year too, and I thought that was important. And just to speak to what you were saying, uh, you know, a minute ago, I-, I talked to Luke Lindenning about a month ago about Dylan, and it wasn't necessarily in the context of, oh, you know, is he going to be named captain? But I-, I wanted to know about Dylan's presence as a leader. And so able to talk, you know, kind of about um, his experience with Dylan. They're both alternate captains last year. And a couple quotes that, that that Luke said that I thought got right to the heart of it. The first one which I think is the crux of, of Dylan as a player. It says, you, you know, if there's something that needs to be said, he's willing to say it. And when you have a guy who practices what he preaches, it's easy to listen to. It doesn't get dry. It doesn't run dry with guys because you see him putting in the work every single day to be the best player he can be. To me, that is, you know, bar none, the, the number one reason why Larkin makes sense as captain. He, he practices what he preaches. Guys respect him because anything he's asking them to do he can do and he does do um and 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 he's you know that this is the only part of the the quality of player that i think does matter for a captain is that you can back up um what you're what you're preaching and then the other comment from glenn denning was he's got a great temperature of the room in terms of he knows when something needs to be said we need to call something out in terms of a team just not performing but he also knows there's a time to lift guys up and that's what makes me think back to what we heard about dylan larkin you know taking bobby ryan golfing this summer when he heard ryan was going to go alone um, you know, calling back within a half hour and, and saying, hey, me and two other guys are going to come join you. These are the things that it's not just the rah-rah. It's the actual culture building and team building and camaraderie. That's the softer side of the captaincy. And uh, it, it's not necessarily the thing that people think of, but I think it's it's every bit as important. And so that's a long way of saying I think he covers both bases here. I think he covers the fire and the brimstone and the, the, the big speech in the locker room when it needs to happen. But I also think he covers the the small things, the lead by example and, and the set it establishing, you know, the, the locker room culture and, and the team culture there. Yeah. I mean, that leading by example is just, is the key for me. I think, uh, you know, I can't recall the exact quote off the top of my head, but I just remember people describing Nick Lidstrom as a, as the Red Wings captain. And it was just, you know, everyone always jokingly referred to him as the perfect human, but in reality, it was the guy put in more work than anybody else, uh, worked harder off the ice than anybody else. And just like you said, Max, you know, he always had the right moment to to step up and say something. And this was also a quality about Eiserman as well. I remember back, uh, you know, when you hear the recap of the 2002 playoff run and, 
And, you know, that was that vaunted Hall of Fame-laden Red Wings team that all of a sudden was down 0-2 to Vancouver, going to Vancouver in the first round. And and Iserman is not blasting people on the plane. It's finding the right thing to say, get everybody going. And all of a sudden, they rattle off four straight there. They beat the Blues in five, and then now they're on to the Avs. And, 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 and so it's it's that kind of leadership, and I think Larkin definitely has that potential. Yeah, you got to know what the room needs. And I think that that comment from Glenn Denning ring, rings true in that sense. It, you have to know when is the time to – um, to really rah rah, and when is the time to just settle it down and say, "Hey, this isn't a big deal. We're going to be okay." And and uh, and I think those are both really valid ab- approaches to uh, to holding the sea and, and to what Larkin Walt we have to do because you know for as much as we talk about the honorific of of the captaincy, ultimately he's guiding this locker room and, and serving as a liaison from the locker room to management and coaches through one of the most difficult periods of the last three decades, maybe, I mean, the most difficult period of the last three decades for this franchise. Yeah, I mean, he's basically facing an impossible task and he's got to be there to support his teammates, to be able to be that liaison, to, again, hold his face in front of the media after you're outshot by, you know, 30 shots on goal in in a game and have to step up and say, you know, yeah, this is what's happening and this is what we're doing and, and be able to handle the situation and the pressure. So, very unique situation he's been casting, but obviously, uh, you know, Eisenman and the organization certainly feels he's ready to handle it. I do feel a little bad that he didn't get to have his uh, his moment in front of Little Caesars Arena as he first came out with it on his on his jersey. Obviously, just a really small crowd of uh, I think it was 250 people were in there last night. You know, um, you know, I don't specifically know who those were if they're if they're family friends. I think I, I heard that maybe they were distributing some tickets among the Winged Wheel Nation. Uh, group that they have there with the Red Wings, uh, but I don't know who specifically they are. So um, whoever they were, they were a select chosen few who got to see uh, a really big moment in Red Wings history and, and certainly in, in Dylan Larkin's career. Um, so that was that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So uh, let's get into uh, let's get into the game here from last night. After the, the ceremony and the, the on-ice introductions, maybe you talked yourself into the Red Wings coming out and as they've done... Last two years, I think, winning on night one. I think they won both their last yeah. two opening nights. Yeah, they did. Uh, did you talk yourself into that, or were you pretty ready for uh, three and a half minutes in, a Larkin turnover on a backhand pass of the zone, Sebastian Ajo comes through and finds uh, Nino Niederreiter on the back door, and the Red Wings are in a very, very quick deficit in 2021? Yeah, you know, as much as I wanted to talk myself into it, I think I had to sit back and recognize the reality. This was a hockey team that had not played a meaningful game in 10 months. And they had had two weeks of practice. 
um, an extra week more than these other teams, facing a Hurricanes team that played in the bubble, got to the second round, you know, played against Boston, uh, and that's in the summer, right? So it's not like they had this long, long layoff. They had their standard, you know, three-month layoff here, and and they're right back into it. So, you know, I I don't I wasn't expecting the Wings to really show up. And again, the Hurricanes have been a matchup nightmare for them uh, the last couple of years because Carolina is a very fast, aggressive forechecking team, gets in on your defense, and and the Red Wings simply don't have defensemen capable of of handling that kind of pressure. So, uh, I was. Just hoping it wasn't as bad as the game I went to last year when it was seven to three. Uh, and thankfully, the scoreboard was not as bad, although by measures of play, it was just as bad as that one. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about that because I, I certainly felt that way watching it live, and I felt like it was, uh, you know, a, a pretty brutal. I mean, the Red Wings were chasing the whole time, they were within one goal the whole time, but the gap by the end was basically a three to one shots on goal margin. I think it finished 43, 14. Yeah. 43 to 14. So afterwards, Jeff Blaschel makes the comment that he thought it was a pretty even game through to looking at the actual scoring chances. And this is an idea that I think we've talked about before on the show. This gets into possession versus shot quality. And obviously the two stats that you think of with those are Corsi four percentage and expected goals four percentage. And he's using chances specifically. I went and looked afterward on natural stat trick because I was surprised to hear him say he thought it was an even game. He actually was it was was right. I mean, it was 1916 by chances after two periods. And that is pretty close. I think if you're the Red Wings, you'll take that margin against a much more talented Carolina team um, through two periods. Now that gets blown way out of the water in the third. Carolina comes back with 18 chances in the third. Detroit comes back with two. Um, there's your final margin. Um, and and then when I looked even further, it, you know, my eyes were right. Carolina had the puck the whole game. But even by expected goals, the shot quality was, I think it was in that 47 to 53 range, 48 to 52 range for the first two periods, blown out of the water in the third. Um, th- that would speak to basically for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with advanced stats, maybe a lot of shots from the outside, a lot of kind of low danger shots that you're not real worried about um, in the first two periods. And then obviously that changes dramatically in the third. Um, I wanted to get your take on that because when he said it, I was a little surprised and the stats did bear it out. And so I I want to give credence to that because, um, you know, certainly we use numbers to hammer them sometimes. And so uh, when they're, when they're right about the numbers, I want to at least acknowledge that too. But at the same time, if it was that close after two, you know, then it was that egregious in the third and, and chasing by a goal, you know, it was, it was not close to being made up to my, to me watching at any point in the third period. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And so, you know, for expected goals for percentage, when we talk about that, right, that's the, you know, of all the, what's the probability of a, a shot becoming a goal. And so effectively when you're summing up all of the shots taken by both teams you know, 50% means it's a relatively even game. Generally, your Stanley Cup contending teams are going to be 55, 56, 57% kind of consistently over the course of the season. You know, Detroit last year was around 40%, uh, which is, you know, quite bad. And, and usually the bad teams are going to sit there between 40 and 44%. And, you know, to Blaschel's eye, first period, 51-49 Carolina. Second period, 51-49 Carolina. That's a tight game, Right. That is a very even game that you're playing against the Carolina Hurricanes, a very good hockey team. Third period, 
8713 Carolina. So right. yes. you know, there, there's a there's a big the rug is pulled out from underneath you. And so this to me was the quintessential Jeff Blashill game. He wants to keep it as a low event hockey game. He wants to keep chances to the outside. I don't think I think he's okay playing this kind of hockey game. And in fact, he got two periods of what he wanted. And sure, if you look at the shots after two periods, it's still pretty ugly. I think shots, uh, you know, at five on five or 24 to 10 Carolina after two periods, uh, you're not going to win a lot of hockey games, you know, get with that kind of differential. But you're also not playing Carolina at the same time every single time. But if Blashill can play that kind of game and you get a couple of pucks to bounce your way, you know, if Matias Brome's shot doesn't hit the crossbar and it goes in the net, all of a sudden that's a 1-1 game and you're talking about a margin of an inch. So to me, the whole entirety of the Jeff Blashill system is to win when you have lesser talent, you have to keep the overall number of events low. You have to keep the chances to the outside and you have to do the best you can to spend as little time as possible in your own zone defending. And I think he achieved all three of those things in the first two periods with this team, even though it's not pretty to watch. It's not fun to watch whatsoever to see Patrick Nemeth flipping a puck up the ice for icing when you have the Larkin Mantha Bertuzzi line on there. But it is potentially, if you win that faceoff, not spending a lot of time in your zone and potentially risking a bad play. So you know, to, to Blashill's credit, I think he got the game he wanted, even though stylistically it's not necessarily a, the prettiest thing to watch. It's kind of a rope-a-dope. It's kind of hang in there as long as you can and wait until you, you have a golden opportunity. And I am with you. It's not fun to watch. You know, I, I've i got one of the best seats in the house, in my opinion, because I get the overhead view that, that Bobby Ryan was talking about today, call it, saying he'd be the MVP of the league if he could watch the game from from that vantage point while he was playing it. Um, I love watching a play develop and with the Red Wings playing that style, not a lot of them do for either team. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, but to their credit, it's their recipe. If you hang in long enough and, and, and you get the right chance at the right moment, you can tie or take the lead when you're the less talented team, that's your play, right? I think that style can beat Chicago. It can hang with Florida. Um, I I think it can, it can hang with Nashville, frankly. I, I think the Red Wings are built, especially, to do well against teams that have a lot of their reliance on one line like they do. When you run into a team like Carolina, whose fourth line can score, whose third line can score, whose defensemen can score, that's a really bad matchup. Carolina is one of the three or four worst matchups for the Red Wings in the league. I'd put Philly in there. I'd put the Islanders in there. I'd put Tampa in there. Uh, maybe Vegas. But I, but even then, I think, you know, I think the Red Wings beat Vegas last year because they seem to be able to do okay against teams like Vegas, Boston, uh, Edmonton, where so much of it comes from this one line that if the Larkin line plays even, who knows what happens? Because the rest of the thing is going to be, you know, body blows, basically. So uh, I think that's what happened. And I think it, it, it wasn't there in the third. And that's when it got really ugly. Um, but I, I don't even think Thomas Grice had the toughest night, even though it was a crazy workload. I think he ended with like a 950 save percentage, uh, on his, on his work for the evening, uh, which is a, a great debut for him. And certainly he should get used to high volumes of shots against him. Um, but it, it stood out to me because when I was watching it live, I, what stood out was that Carolina had the puck all night and that does hold up in the stats. You look and it's, you know, 62, 6, 62, 37, 62, 37, 
uh, 77-23 the whole way. I mean, th- that's Carolina having the puck all night. Um, but I thought that was interesting. And and to be clear, when we talk about the, the chances and the expected goals, it's not because the Red Wings were getting like many. It's just because they were limiting everything to the outside and they were basically making it um, a nothing game outside of that one Larkin turnover early. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly it. Like if you look at Grice's numbers, you know, he faces 42 shots. But those 42 ch- shots really total to an expected number of goals of about 3.3, right? Which yep. is not a lot of goals to get off of 42 shots. Um, you know, that's still suggesting a better than 900 save percentage in that situation. And so uh, they the Wings really did a nice job of keeping Carolina to the outside. And, and granted, Carolina stylistically is a team that is more than willing to take any shot from anywhere, uh, yep. including shooting from the point the from the boards, you know, they, they will take every shot. So it's a little bit of the reason why the shot disparity looks as bad as it is, is Detroit's giving them the outside and Carolina's happy to take it. So it, it's kind of that happy situation there, but you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, Grace didn't have the toughest workload. He did have a couple of, uh, you know, tough chances to, to deal with. And obviously the, the Nita Ryder goal was, uh, you know, a bad defensive breakdown where no one catches him coming off the bench and, and Mantha unfortunately misses him and doesn't pick him up until too late. But outside of that, there just were not a lot of clean opportunities for the Hurricanes. And I think if you're looking for the one solace to take away from this as a Wings fan, yeah, the shot disparity is bad. Yeah, it looked like the scoreboard ended up being bad. This was a 1-0 hockey game with under three minutes to go and Carolina didn't have a lot of grade A chances. So I think you have to be happy with that when you're talking about a potential cup contending team this year. At the same time, that may be Detroit's recipe, Detroit's blueprint, Detroit's preference. They still didn't score a goal. And if you're going to try to win games 2-1 or 3-2, you got to be able to score two or three goals. And uh, honestly, outside of that Bromay chance, there was the one Larkin tip across the slot that was really dangerous and a really nice play. Uh, Offense, for me, wasn't close to really even challenging Peter Morazic enough. Yeah, I mean, this was the huge problem for the Wings last year. I think they finished nearly half a goal per game below the 30th team in the league. So they were just absolutely struggling to get any sort of shots off here. I think it was very consistent. Again, when you saw look at the game, the, the Wings barely put anything on on Morazic. I think he he the Wings finished with the expected goals of a little over one. That's, that's not going to win very many hockey games unless you're getting shutout level performances from your goaltenders. Yeah. Detroit's got the goaltenders that can do it. Grice is great. Bernier was great last year. Um, but you're still not going to win very many games when you have that kind of spread. And so what really has to happen is they have to find offense from somewhere else. I think we were initially encouraged from camp when you have a second line put together of, you know, Nemesnikov and Fabry and Zadina and how would that line hold up? Well, that line really got rocked um, in this game. I thought and it was their worst line. That was the worst. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think it was the worst line for the, the Wings. That Nemesnikov finished with a five-on-five expected goals for percentage of 5%. So 95% of the expected goals for when Nemesnikov was on the ice was by Carolina. That is not a scenario you want to be. You know, as a line in their eight minutes together, I think they finished at about 21%. Uh, there despite starting 10 of their 13 shifts in the offensive zone or neutral zone. That means they were getting caved in and it was really against Carolina's second and third lines, which granted are still very good lines, but 
that's that that wasn't against the Aho line. That was against more of the Svechnikov and Stahl line with Natchez and you know, then then the line after that kind of with Warren Fogle. So you, you just can't see that happening when, especially when they're given favorable deployment. This goes back to two things that we've talked about on the on this podcast. One over the last two weeks, and one like a year ago. So the last two weeks we've talked about this Zadina Fabry line. The key for them is going to be can they win the puck back? Because when they have it, they're skilled players. They're skilled players that can make offense happen. When they don't, the the big question is who's going to go get it? I mean, Zadina has showed it through camp that he's shown more engagement and his, his ability to hunt pucks and, and lift sticks uh, and get puck uh, pucks moving the other way. I think that's important. Um, but when they don't have it, that's that's been our question. And last night, they didn't have it for one big reason, which is that they never started with it. Hardly ever. Robbie Fabry was two of 14, I think, on faceoffs by the end of the night. And look, that's to be expected. This is a guy who's transitioning from the wing back to center. I'm not trying to dump on Robbie Fabry here, but that's a huge reason for why they struggled because you have a line that wants to play with the puck and whose one big question is, can they get it when they don't have it? Well, no matter where on the ice you're starting him, you're starting them, uh, if they're losing the faceoff, they're chasing. They're, and, and Carolina's got the defense that'll get it out of their zone in a hurry, even if it is an ozone draw. So um, that to me was a huge story of the night and a huge story for why that line struggled and a huge story for why the faceoffs were as lopsided as they were. Because if you add up every other Detroit center, I mean, the faceoffs by the end of the game were 60 40 percentage wise for Carolina, which is a massive discrepancy. Well, go back and look. And Luke Lindenning was like nine of 14. Dylan Larkin was eight of 18. Valtteri Filippo was three of seven. Add those three up. And they actually had a slight edge on Carolina. Three out of the four centers had an edge on Carolina on the dot. But Fabry and Sam Gagne um, had a really rough time. I think it was like three of eighteen for for, for those two. And, and Gagne obviously only a part part time taking draws on the Filippo line. I'm not bashing Robbie Fabry. This was to be expected as he transitions, but it has a big role in explaining two big things about why this game went the way that it did um, on the faceoff dot and with his line in particular. Yeah, I. I think you're going to see Blasio be a little quick on the hook with this line. And it's something you and I talked about. You know, I said the key to this season was going to be how long does that line stick together? Because the longer they stick together, that means the more likely they're having success. I think it's, you know, as soon as Bobby Ryan is back, you may see changes there. Uh, You may see Nemestikov going to center. He's played some center, although not recently. Uh, You really have to throw him back to, to his time in Tampa when he was playing uh, center and even he played a little bit with the Rangers, but it's been quite a while. Uh, so you know you may see that. You know you, it's it's tough to say. There's just as much as you have guys labeled as being able to play center on this roster, the faceoffs kind of come down to Dylan Larkin and Luke Lindenning, and those are the two guys who can win draws on this team. And so I don't I don't know what you're going to see, but I suspect if you see another performance like this on Saturday uh, from this line, they are not going to be sticking together that much longer. I think you're right, and I think I think they'll get one game in, in Bobby Ryan's return, which I do think will be Saturday based on um, today's practice and how that went. I, I think uh, Nemesnikov, uh, Zadina, and Fabry will stick together for another game, but if it doesn't go well, I think you're going to have to have a, a quick hook. because. Um, but, but I also don't know that it, it's going to necessarily solve the problem because until Fabry gets up to speed on face-offs, which is just going to take time and reps, any line you put him out there with is going to have this problem. So, it, you know... There was one time where they subbed Glendening on for Zadina on a D-zone draw, and I thought, oh, they're going to have Glendening take the draw, 
and then Zadina will come on for Glendening. But they still had Fabry take the draw. And, um, you know, if this was Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals, we would be criticizing that decision uh, night and day. But because they're trying to work Fabry, and I also kind of get it, and I think it, it almost tells you what will happen if this line doesn't work, is that they'll ha- they'll keep Fabry as long as they want to keep him at center. They'll, they'll keep giving him chances to get those reps and win those draws, but they're going to have to play him with players who are real good forecheckers, real good defenders, because you're going to be expecting to lose a lot of those draws at first. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's that's a huge reason why Andreas Athanasiou never stuck at center. Um, yep. was struggling his struggles in the faceoff cent- uh, circle and then it became moving him out to wing and then it became trying to find the advantageous uh you know d- deployment scenarios for him and ultimately it never worked out and you know when the wings first acquired Fabry I think you and I talked about this that you know Fabry stylistically is quite similar to Athens you not necessarily the blazing speed but that same mold of the offensively talented but potentially handicapped defense player in that sense. And so how was he going to, you know, round out the rest of the game? And that was going to be key to him moving forward. And so for this line to really take off, I think Fabry's got to be better in the faceoff circle. It's not just the center, right? Faceoffs often require the wingers to come in positioning yep. there. So it's an entire line effort, uh, but it, Fabry's at least got to get it to be a toss up puck for that to happen. So uh, I'm looking for that to be, uh, the big source of improvement for that line. And if that doesn't happen, you know, look to see Valtteri Filppula move back up, look to see Sam Gagne move back up, look to see, you know, changes like that. Potentially even you get the, the Larkin Mantha Bertuzzi line broken up to try and get those guys and, uh, you know, streamlined uh, throughout the lineup as opposed to concentrated there. Yeah, it's a good point. And I, I want to be clear. I thought Robbie Fabry competed really well last night. I, this is not an effort thing from yeah. him. Like I thought he battled. I thought he was flying around. This is just, it's a really specialized skill. And it's something that you you, you got to put a lot of reps in, in. And in two weeks of training camp with no preseason games, it was to be expected. But that doesn't mean it wasn't costly. And so that's why uh, we bring As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct TV satellite-free. You see this? 
this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I, I do uh, want to mention... Uh, Anthony Manta had a 42% uh, faceoff uh, percentage last year, which still, granted, isn't quite good. But if there were to be any moving around, I, I wonder if Anthony Manta couldn't win some draws. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you might as well try anybody because I don't have better options in the lineup. So, you know, move Manta to center, right? I mean, that'll make him uh, just see not what the center, but, but he could take some draws every now and yeah. then, I guess. I don't know. He Maybe certainly it's, could. it's still not a great percentage. I think they want... I think they want you to be 47 or higher to really be in the fight, uh, you know, consistently. But that, yeah, that's fair. Kind of a nothing opinion, but we're throwing out there. Um, let's talk about some of the new guys. So we've talked about uh, the goaltender, Thomas Grice, but there were five new Red Wings in total, six new Red Wings in total um, last night. And that would be Grice, Matthias Brome, the import from the SHL, Troy Stetcher and John Merrill a free agent defenseman, Mark Stahl, acquired via trade as a defenseman, and Vladislav Nemesnikov, uh, who came in as a free agent as well. Yeah, I mean, of those guys, I think the highlight for most everyone was Matthias Brome. I think he looked quite comfortable skating with the puck. He looked very comfortable playing a possession style of hockey. Now, granted, his line, uh, ultimately, when you look at him over the totality of the game, didn't really have a lot of success. You know, his line was right there, uh, you know, with the with the Fabry line in terms of their overall performance against uh, the Hurricanes. But that being said, they were also the line that generated Detroit's most dangerous chance. And uh, it came on a great individual effort from Bromez. He was basically able to shrug off Brady Shea, who, yes, he's not the biggest guy in the world, but, you know, being able to make that move at the NHL level, shrug him off, come around the front, get a shot, ring it off the pipe, I think, that's the kind of skill you want to see, um, you know, from him moving forward. That's the kind of game that he plays well. So I think, you know, hey, keep him going, keep him coming, um, and and we'll see how he uh, matures. But I think that was a good – that was one of Detroit's more effective lines, honestly. Um, you know, and a lot of it had to do with Brome. He had another pass, I think, uh, at one point from the – I guess it'd be the right circle if you're facing the net into the slot for John Merrill that I don't think amounted to a chance, but it was a heads up play and a, and a good, it's not quite a seam pass, um, but he found a passing lane to Merrill in there. And I don't think it ended up in a shot, but I thought it was a good pass and a good play. So it's something to watch. I, I, I thought he was okay. Frankly, I didn't think he was great, but he had the one highlight and that highlight was something that, um, it can go a long way. I mean, it, it's the kind of thing that's really hard to do. He, he fended off. Was it, was it Shea that was on his back? Yeah, it was Brady Shea who was coming around basically was on top of him. a big guy. Yeah. And Matias Brome is, you know, 6 nothing, and he, he he wheels around the net with, with Shea on his back, brings it out front, makes a good pivot to get his uh, his body turned square to the net, and he tings one off the crossbar. And if it's an inch lower, it's in the net. Uh, so it was a nice play. And it's, it's really, if you make one of those plays every game, um, you're going to score goals in the league. So I, I, th- I think it was a, a good debut for Brome. Um, but I do think it, a lot of it was carried by just a few shifts. Yeah, I, I mean, that's really what it was, is he he ended up looking really nice just 
from that shift overall because that was honestly Detroit's offensive highlight for the game. Yeah, it was. <laughs> there was it nothing was. else to talk about. So I think he definitely stands out. And then obviously in contrast, you know, we talked about Nemestikov already having, a, yep. you know, just horrific uh, debut. I'm more interested in talking about the defensemen, though. So John Merrill, Troy Stetcher, uh, and Mark Stahl. So you've got uh, half your blue line are brand new. I don't know, Max, what your thoughts were on on the three of them. Uh, I didn't like Stahl's game. I thought he had a tough night. I think he had a few giveaways, and I thought that he looked okay through camp, and I was curious to see how it was going to look when he wasn't facing the Red Wings, uh, and it was a much tougher go. So, um, I, But I, I didn't think any of the D... I actually liked Heronik's game uh, for most of the night, and I thought Nemeth had a few solid plays. Um, it, obviously this is the story for, for Hironic is he's going to be in all these tough situations. And so as the game went, I think it got tougher and tougher. And obviously we talked about Carolina's third period already through two periods. I was really liking Philip Hironic's night. And I, I don't think, you know, it was egregious really at any point. Um, but so I thought to me, he was the best defenseman and, and maybe Nemeth with him. So that's fitting for Detroit's top pair. Right. I actually thought Danny DeKaiser, who's not one of the new guys, um, didn't look smooth yet, and maybe that's to be expected again, his first official game back from back surgery. But yeah, I thought Stahl really struggled, and I thought Merrill and Stetcher were just okay. I thought Stetcher had some real highlight um, plays, just keeping the, the puck in the blue line. And again, these are one of those things where you remember it's a Red Wings podcast because um, that's not supposed to be a highlight, but it's something that this team has struggled to do at times in the past couple of years. And I thought Stetcher made a couple of, um, you know, what do you call it? Low percentage plays that are high percentage. Play? How do you like, there were low probability of success that he made work. Yeah. Um, and, and so I thought that was good on him. He's clearly a battler. I still think this guy's going to, going to make the fan base uh, really like him just with, with how much he gives. Um, I don't know that he's going to score a lot. I think it's the same story for Merrill. I thought Merrill was okay. Like I didn't think he was bad. Um, you know, his power play unit was a lot better than the top power play unit. I thought that was interesting. I don't know that it was because of him. I think it was because of Heronic. But um, nonetheless, I, I thought uh, four solid defensive performances from the Red Wings, and that fits with what we're talking about. Like, it was an okay defensive performance for at least two-thirds of the game, and I would attribute that mostly to Heronic, Nemeth, Stetcher, and uh, Merrill, which is kind of ironic because those aren't necessarily pairs. But um, I did think Mark Stahl struggled quite a bit. I don't know if that was uh, just me, though. No, I mean, I think Stahl and DeKaiser really struggled. I think DeKaiser yeah. obviously first came back in a long time. I mean, you're talking about his last game is October of 2019. So, you know, now you're coming here and you're sitting in January of 2021. That's, you know, 14 months, 13 months he's gone without playing a meaningful uh, hockey game. So, you know, that's a that's a huge challenge for him. And I, I think you could certainly tell Stahl obviously is exactly what I think most people expected from Mark Stahl at this point in his career. Guy was a good defenseman for a really long time. I think his body's kind of breaking down on him and doesn't necessarily have the same instincts that he did maybe six, seven years ago uh, with the Rangers. I, you know, there was nothing to write home about for me, for John Merrill or Stetcher. I mean, if the highlight of of a Red Wings defenseman is managed to play with the puck 150 feet from his net. I mean, right. that that's where we're at, but let's call <laughs> it out and say that's not much of a highlight to be really excited about. No, so, you're right. <laughs> you, you know, Red Wings man plays with puck 150 feet from net. That's exciting, right? I mean, so <laughs> I, I don't have a lot to write home about for any of the defensemen because that was the highlight no, of I them. Agree. The, the highlight was put puck on net 
or the highlight was didn't get run over at uh, at the blue line or like yeah. cleared puck without icing it. Like those are the things that I wrote down as notes of things that Red Wings <laughs> defensemen did well. And so, you know, it's going to be tough. At the end of the day, you have to find a way to minimize Philip Peronik's minutes. That's why you, you largely overhauled your blue line this year. Philip Peronik still played just under 25 minutes last night. You have yeah. to find a way to get those minutes down for him. 22. I think, right? You know, I think he really yep. struggled last season with that minute count being 25, 26, 27. You can't let that happen again. Sure enough, game one, you know, you get the Kaiser installed playing 16 minutes and you've got Philip Peronik up at 24. So got to find a way. To I make think it's something better. they're conscious of. I, yeah. I do. I think Jeff Blash will address it. And he basically attributed to played a little too much in the first period. And late in the game is where you want to have the buffer. Like I think if, if you're on, if you want to be on track for 22 minutes, you know, that would average out to about, you know, 720 per period. But you know, late in the game, if it's any kind of close game, you're going to want to lean on Hironic and you're going to want to be able to give him eight, if not nine minutes in the third period. That means he's probably going to have to be more like six in the first. Um, and that's a tough balance to strike because you want to set a tone too. There's there's really no time in a hockey game where you where you consciously want to be keeping your best player off the ice. But um, just in terms of managing ice time, managing workload, we've talked about how important it is with Hironic specifically. Um, I don't know if it's you know specific to like you know, the fact that he's uh, a, a younger player, if it's the fact that he's only six foot and a lot of these minute eaters around the league are this kind of mold of a, of a Victor Hedman, of a Jacob Slavin, of a Dougie Hamilton, these really big guys. Uh, um, I don't know if that factors into it, but it seems like something the Red Wings are conscious of. And, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if they um, maybe start Heronic with a little bit um, lighter loads in the first period in, in the coming games. Yeah, I mean... You want to talk about the difference between those minute crunchers and Philip Peronik? Think about the quality or difficulty of minutes those guys are playing, right? Great they are point. not defending in their zone the entire time. They're not chasing. It's not the physical, uh, you know, board battles in their own end, the, the puck retrievals. It's They're playing offense. They're, they're skating the puck out of their zone. They're getting to keep the puck in. It's not as physical of a game as Philip Peronik. He's not, you know, they're not having the same issue of constantly turning their back skating into their own zone and taking a hit to make a play. And and I think those minutes from Philip Peronik are just tougher minutes than other people from a physicality standpoint. And that's why 25 minutes a night for him with the current status of this team is not sustainable. Whereas 25 minutes for Victor Hedman when Tampa's playing with the puck the entire time is much easier to do. Uh, it's not that physical of a game. Carolina, same thing. Dougie Hamilton and Slavin can do it because they always have the puck. So I think that's the biggest difference when I watch Philip Peronik. Yep, I think that's a great point. And it's it's going to be one of the things that they struggle with for all these guys. As they bring players along, one of the developmental challenges that maybe we haven't talked about enough is that other teams, as they develop their young players, do it in this developmental environment where you know they're, they're winning at least a lot of the time or, or at least half the time around. Um, and, and they're doing it in situations where they can kind of pick and choose and, and, and shelter where needed and, and, and do all these things. But when you have someone like Philip Hironik, who, you know, this guy is still in just his second full NHL season, he's being asked to be a, a true number one workload and that's challenging. And, and I think he has the physical toughness, the mental toughness to weather it. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not challenging and it's it's not an obstacle. And I think that's going to be the case for a lot of Red Wings young players as they come through here. You know, Zadina, like I almost wonder, 
you know, people, I, I wasn't quite on the beat when Mantha was really young, but I've heard people talk about the, the management of Mantha and of Athanasiu in particular and, and the ways that Blashell tried to kind of build habits there. And it almost seems like they don't even have that option with Zadina to to try to do some of those same things. And I'm, I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, I think it is good for young guys to play at least moderate amounts. But um, I, one of the things I've been struck by is is there seems to be a need to to just let Hironic um, make it work because he's their best defenseman. Yeah, I mean, if you want to draw a parallel right now, look at Ottawa and look at Thomas Shabbat, right? He's in the very same situation yes. as Philip Peronic here, where you're behind a bad team, but he's the best defenseman you've got. Now, Shabbat has done a much better job than Heronic, because I do think Shabbat is a better defenseman than Philip Peronic. But, you know, there were still kind of questions and concerns about, you know, how much he's going to be able to do moving forward behind this bad team. How much do those minutes weigh on him? I mean, he led the league in ice time last year. And so that's right. Uh, you know, I think that's the parallel here. And you're just hoping that uh, Philip Perona can turn the corner. I don't think he's a Thomas Shabbat caliber defenseman, but can he turn the corner at least somewhat and start having positive minutes as opposed to having these very difficult physical minutes that's a lot of defending in his own zone? Yep. It's going to be something they face. It's going to be something they face with him. It's going to be something they face with Moritz Sider, uh, whether that's at the end of this year or into next year. And it, it's, it's really interesting to to see play out and, and to evaluate. So I asked this question to Jeff Blaschel today. Uh, this is, and I'll ask it to you now. He, he kind of laughed when I asked it because of, of course he's not going to be able to answer it uh, on camera, maybe at all to me. Um, but this year they have the ability to make adjustments game to game. It's like a playoff series. You're, you're not going to face this team a month from now. You're going to face them tomorrow. Um, what would your adjustments be? I, I, I kind of wonder if the power play is a spot that makes some sense. They're already naturally, uh, weaving in Bobby Ryan as long as he's cleared to play back to that net front spot instead of Vladislav Nemesnikov. Um, as we were talking about on Twitter with uh, at Iserman season uh, the other day uh, during the game, uh, I do think that's something that, that could be interesting. Ryan's a right-hand shot, so when he's on the goal line facing Larkin, it's a really obvious outlet lane down to the goal line. Uh, I think that's something you've been a big advocate of in the past, especially rather than the static in the crease net front presence, but rather having a goal line presence for playmaking. Um, is that the biggest adjustment they need to make or is there something else? I think that's the, that's the biggest thing to start with is, uh, you know, obviously we haven't even talked about the Red Wings special teams, but you know, once again, it was very similar to last year, not really very aggressive on the PK. Um, Carolina played almost an entire two minute power play. I think on the Dezingle goal, uh, I think they played almost an entire two minutes in there um, on a power play shortly before that. And then, you know, from a Red Wings power play standpoint, just it was discombobulated. They couldn't enter the zone. They couldn't maintain possession in the zone. There were no passing outlets. Uh, so I think there was a lot of issues there and they just couldn't get set up. To me, the first thing I do is I, I take uh, Bobby Ryan, drop him on the power play like they were practicing. I think that's an easy fix. And then the second thing for me is, you know, what do the lines look like with Bobby Ryan back? Uh, you know, if I'm uh, Blasio, I actually break up Bertuzzi, Lark, and Mantha. This team is not uh, capable of having those three all concentrated on one line, in my opinion. Uh, I think Bobby Ryan's a guy who's very talented and can play up on the top line. Uh, I would put Bobby Ryan up on the top line, and I would take Anthony Mantha off of the top line. I think Mantha is an excellent play driver, and I would drop him down, and I would let him play with Fabri Zadina and, and himself. And I think that's 
a line that can maybe possess the puck a little bit more when you've got a guy like Mantha who is such a good driver of offense and such a good skater with the puck and uh, can make a lot of those plays with his re- with his reach. I think that's uh, a great natural switch there. And then, you know, move Nemesnikov down. And then so, you know, you ask yourself who comes out of the lineup. I think for me, it's Adam Ernie. I think he comes out of the lineup. Uh, I think you can make a case for, you know, a couple of other guys, but that's probably what I would do. Uh, it'll be Nielsen. Um, it'll be it'll Nielsen. Be Nielsen. He, okay. Yep. He was in the gray. I mean, I can't say for concrete certain, but he was in the gray jersey uh, at practice today, along with Rasmussen and Smith, the taxi squad guys. So it looks like, and I thought actually Ernie deserved that. I thought he was okay yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was okay. I think you could pick Ernie or Nielsen either way. Um, yeah. You know, and then obviously the natural trickle down. So you'll move Nemestnikov down to the third line, let him play with Gagne. Um, you know, potentially, and and Brome, if you're going to put Gagne at center and Nemestikov at center, um, and then move Glenn Denning down to play on the fourth line uh, to fill up that Ernie spot. But that'd be the natural thing I think I would do, would be to break up that Bertuzzi-Larkin-Mantha line, get Mantha, you know, to help Fabry and Zadina uh, on that second line, and then let Bobby Ryan get on the power play. Um, I think they're going to keep the Zadina-Nemestikov line for tomorrow, is my gut feel. Um, I, I didn't see who Ryan was skating with today, but I think it would have been Gagne and Philpola. So maybe Brome is on the, the fourth line with Ernie Denning. I think that, I think that can work. Um, but I'm not a hundred percent positive. So don't, don't hold me to that. But um, yeah, I, mean, I think, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think Bobby Ryan's entrance into the lineup is a factor here. I mean, it, there was a time where we were talking about him as kind of the marquee free agent signing, uh, for the Red Wings. And so we'll see how it goes. I, I think he's going to have the same adjustment period that a lot of the Red Wings did last night. And Dylan Larkin kind of mentioned, you know, saying it it kind of felt like your first NHL game after how long it had been. And it's going to be just like that for Bobby Ryan, um, especially because he didn't get to play the last two preseason scrimmages. So I, I think he'll have a um, an adjustment period, maybe two periods uh, of that game. But I do think the power play is where that slows down. And if he can be a difference maker on that power play, um, that can be a huge difference maker because the Red Wings got two or three chances, two chances last night at that. Um, you know, certainly a 50% conversion rate would make you the best power play in NHL history. So it's it's not the end of the world that they didn't do it. But um, you need to get one early here and establish something on this power play unit, get some good mojo going. Um, and I, I think he can really help him do that. Yeah, because especially if you're going to play this lockdown, low event style of Jeff Lasho wants yes. to play for this team, you're probably not going to convert a lot at five on five because, you know, you're not going to open it up enough for your team to really out talent or out skill the other team. So where's your opportunity to score? It's got to be at five on four. It's got to be on the power play. That's got to be where you're going to make this team pay. You know, if you look and you think about the teams that are able to get away with this kind of very trappy uh, defensive style. It's got to be teams that have the ability or incapacity to play um, well on the power play. And I think that's going to be the key for Detroit. Yep. I think that checks out completely. Anything else you want to talk about before? I mean, it's going to have a short shelf life. There'll be a new game here uh, in about 24 hours, but anything else on your mind? No, I mean, I just absolutely love how we could uh, make all of these comments after our very first hockey game. We did everything that you're not supposed to do, but we did it anyways. <laughs> That's right. No overreactions here. Just uh, calm, cool, considered, sure to be right and sure to hold up predictions uh, in the long run. Well, I'm just glad it's hockey season again. I hope you guys are hanging in there. I hope uh, I hope you're ready for 
uh, for everything that this season is going to bring, good and bad. I, I think it's going to be uh, there's going to be nights like this, and there's going to be nights better than this, and there might even be a few nights worse than this. But uh, the important thing is there's going to be hockey nights again, and I think we're all uh, going to be better off for that. So stick with us uh, on the podcast. We'll be back at you early next week. Uh, a couple games coming up against Columbus that we'll be able to dive into. Um, and then, and really keep reading everything on the athletic. We, we've got a lot going on right now. The lions just hired a new GM might be hiring a new coach. I, I know you guys are going to want to read everything that Chris Burke and Nick Baumgartner have been putting out on that front. Lots of draft intrigue coming up. What's going to become a Matthew Stafford. Um, I've been reading their, their content like a fiend for the last month or so. So, um, if you're not on the athletic yet, you can get a subscription for three ninety nine a month at theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast. Get you a little discount as a listener. Um, and we'd love to have you. It's, it's going to be a short, fast and fun hockey season. Um, well some of the time, but, uh, we'll try to make it as fun as possible for you on here. Uh, and, and, and we appreciate you. So hang in there and, uh, enjoy some hockey this weekend.